Well, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, I hope that you do. I'd like you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find it, I'd like for you to find the 11th chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. And we find ourselves in Sermon 2 of a sermon series we began last week called Church Matters. Now, this, of course, is not the second sermon in the book of 1 Corinthians, I had a delightful conversation just a few moments ago with one of our first-time guests who was trying to understand how that worked, and I explained to her uh, what sometimes I assume and I shouldn't. And we're walking through this book verse by verse. We began back in August, but as the chapters and the subject matter of the books change, we will brand a series just to help you better connect the truth of the text with your life and the wisdom with which we want you to grow in. And in chapter 11 of this continual journey, Paul turns his attention toward just some matters in the church. Well, I think this is important because church matters. And when we think about church matters, that means that church matters matter. It matters to the Lord how we handle the matters that arise within our faith family. If it matters to him, well, it should matter to us. I'm especially sensitive about this during this hour. We certainly have students and young people in our first morning service at 9 a.m., but the vast majority of our students and our older elementary age uh, children in the church are in this service. And for those of you who are third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, all the way up through your college years, let me tell you why sermons like this are important for you. This statistically is probably not your last church. In fact, many of the adults in this church this morning did not grow up in this church. In, in fact, if you were in church before 1988, you weren't in this church because this church didn't begin until 1988 in a living room just a few minutes from here. My point is, is that when we follow the Lord throughout all of the seasons of our lives, it may in fact take us to different communities, different towns, different locations in our world that is becoming much more globalized, different nations. And that means that every student in this room, every young person in this room, will one day choose another church. Now, there are a few that go to school here, graduate from here, maybe go off to college, come back here, marry here, have their families here, and we would love to keep you here. But many of you will make a choice at some point in your future about whether or not God is calling you to fellowship with a new church in a new community because you have a new career or a new job or a new home. And when that happens, you need to be able to correctly evaluate the health of the church you're visiting, you're praying about. This matters. Of course, we all have preferences. And so usually our first impressions are, were people kind to me? Did I know how to get in and out of the parking lot? Did I check my children in? Do I feel like that's safe? Did I understand the worship? Did the pastor try to connect the message of God to me? All those are very important. And as you know, the leaders of Church at the Mill work very hard to do that week in and week out. But there also has to be some theological depth and accuracy. It can be a dangerous thing to join a church that checks your preferential boxes but does not abide by the will and the word of God. So students, while well, you may think, well, this is just a sermon in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, specifically dealing with the Lord's Supper. Uh, okay, remember this. One day you're going to choose another church. And when you do, it's important that the church preach and teach, not what Pastor DJ says, but what the Bible says. The Bible is the standard that I'm held to and every other leader. Now, there is something that many of you thought about just a month ago, a little over a month ago, as we began our new year. Almost all New Year's resolutions categories have one of them about our diet or weight loss. Now, I don't want to depress you or discourage you. You've already abandoned that diet from January 1st. If you haven't, you will tonight at the Super Bowl party of your choice. But one of the things that has become more popular than a particular diet is just eating clean. Clean eating. And the whole idea is, is that there's a lot of research, depending on who you talk to, that processed food's just not good for us. And that the more food you can eat that comes to us in its most 
pure form, the better it is for you. Now, I'm not pushing any diet. You can look at me and tell me I'm not the guy you need to hire to do that. But the point is, I know in my life, if I eat better, I feel better. I know I have more energy. And we understand when we say clean eating, it doesn't mean that the food that's not good for you is not sanitary. It means that it's not as pure, that it's not in as original form. One of the things you hear trainers and dietitians talk about is try to shop on the outside of the grocery store, that which is refrigerated, that which is produce, and the inside shelves, they have all the processed food. Try to stay away from those. Sadly, that's where the little Debbie cakes are. <laughs> Maybe we ought to put them on the outside so we feel better. Well, this was in produce. But have you ever thought about eating the Lord's Supper clean? See, there was some bad, unclean eating going on in Corinth. When Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, he wrote proactively and reactively. Proactively, he wrote about some truths that are true for any believer. Reactively, Paul was reacting to some negative reports of some misbehavior, some mishandling within the church. And by the time we get to chapter 11, he's dealt with some really big issues of theological depth. He's dealt with the issues of sexual sin in the church. He's dealt with issues last week of the right way to dress and head coverings and all that that meant. And now he comes to the Lord's Supper. But the reason he comes to it is not to celebrate it, though he will. The reason he comes to it is because it's being badly abused. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time, you've not only observed, you've probably participated in the Lord's Supper. If you came from another tradition of Christianity, you may have participated in communion. If you were raised or were familiar with our friends and neighbors in the Roman Catholic Church, you may have attended a mass where they take communion. Christians are not foreign to the concept of the Lord's Supper. But sometimes when something is a ceremony and it's tacked on to the end of a service or it happens at the beginning of the service, we forget its eternal and spiritual significance. So at the conclusion of the service, we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. But unlike most services where we enjoy it together at the conclusion of a service, the entire sermon is about the way that the Lord would have us Eat his supper clean. What Paul does is he addresses an issue, and because he addresses the issue from a structural standpoint, Paul has to be critical. First, we see a criticism of what's taking place in Corinth. Read with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Read silently as I read aloud. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. If you were with me last week, you know that in verse 2, he actually was commending them a little about their adherence to certain customs. Look at verse 2, same chapter, chapter 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. So when Paul had reason to commend them, he would. But based on what he's heard, He's got nothing good to say about what they've done to the Lord's Supper. What had they done to the Lord's Supper? Well, let's find out. Look at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. There's the most convicting indictment in the passage. Paul basically says, you can call it that, but you've long since left the Lord's Supper as delivered to the apostles. You're not really participating in it. He goes on to say these words in verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. I read that this week thinking, I've never had that happen where somebody got drunk in the Lord's Supper. Then I was reminded, all you got there is juice. If you did get drunk on that, 
we got other problems going on. But apparently, there was some drunkenness in this church. I'll explain why in just a minute. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So right out of the gates, Paul says, let me tell you what is wrong with your abuse of the Lord's Supper. And I'm about to explain to you why this matters to you and to me. First of all, most of you have never been a part of a house church. Most of you who grew up in church grew up in an organized, established church that had its own structure. May have been a little red brick building, could have been a little white clapboard building, could have been something that looked like a, a cathedral with stained glass windows. It could have been a contemporary church planted in a theater or the cafeteria of a local elementary school. But most of you who grew up going to church, well, I just said it, you went to church. The first century knew none of this. It's not till later in Christianity do Christians have the resources to build churches. So the first churches, after the Lord gave the church's spirit on the day of Pentecost, were very much like the churches we find today in places like China, in Iran, in Syria. Places where people are meeting around God's word in the comfort and the protection of their home. In fact, we know that especially countries that are adversarial to the faith, the faith really grows through the meeting of believers in homes. This is what the church in Corinth would have looked like. Now, in that, you also had a church that was wrought with divisions. In fact, if you look at the problem with Corinth around the Lord's Supper, it's a progression of people being divided up into factions. These divisions led to deviations. People abused the Lord's Supper. They didn't follow God's will. And the deviations really led to discrimination specifically against the poor believers in Corinth. Now, why the poor believers? Well, it goes something like this. If you are young starting out, you typically live in a small apartment, maybe a trailer, maybe a rental home. We've all been there. When I married Laurel, I brought her home to a trailer, an Alabama dream. We lived in a trailer. Then we lived in a small seminary apartment. Then we moved here and we bought a small garden home. Then we bought a little bit larger home. I now live in the largest home that we've lived in. But it took a while to get there. When you start out in life or you don't have a lot financially, typically that is reflected in the size of the home that you can afford. doesn't mean that everybody with a large home is wealthy, but it does mean they had at least enough credit to qualify for a mortgage to make a payment on more space than they could have when they were young. This is the nature of life. We get this. Well, in Corinth, the wealthier believers, just like in our community, would have had the larger homes. With a larger home, you can host more gatherings. You can have more people over. And in this, there seemed to be divisions within the church. Now, what were the divisions about? We well, have to go all the way back to chapter 1 and chapter 2. We dealt with those last fall. Really, it was spiritual arrogance. They were lining themselves under different factions. Some thought they followed this teacher. Some thought they followed that teacher. That's a telltale sign of divisions when people align themselves under a human personality and not the person of Christ. We don't want to build our churches around the charisma of one leader. We want to reproduce leaders and send them out. This is exactly why there's a live preacher today preaching in Woodruff. There'll be a live preacher in May preaching at Lake Cooley. We're not interested in propagating one personality. We want to reproduce leaders at every level, not just at the pastoral level. This keeps the church healthy. Well, this was not happening in Corinth, and those divisions had already emerged. Well, once they emerged, apparently based on the passage, some of the wealthier members created a faction. And they would arrive early, and they would bring food, and they would treat it like an irreverent gathering and not a holy communion before the Lord. Interestingly enough, in the first century and now, another thing that goes with wealth is more freedom in your schedule. When you get that first job, you don't tell your boss what you'd like to do. You show up when your hours start. You clock in. All of us had a job where we were paid by the hour. Some men and women in our church still should very proudly be proud of a, 
of a career where they are paid by the hour. And I see a, a renaissance of blue-collar careers happening in and around us. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing to be ashamed of. But when you are paid by the hour, you are set in your schedule. If you own your own business or you have a career that allows you some mobility, you can get to the fellowship earlier. You can come when you want and bring what you can afford. And so it looks as though they were calling the Lord's Supper nothing more than a gathering of the believers with little to no interest in making sure every believer could participate. And some of them had taken what originally was to be a reverend supper before the Lord and turned it into a fellowship. There's an obscure reference in Jude about love feasts. And there's some theology behind it. So the early church was characterized by wanting to be together and enjoying the fellowship of a meal. This is not foreign to us. If you grew up in a small church, the second most important building, after you built the sanctuary, you know, you had to walk through the vestibule to get into the sanctuary. And then if you go through the right doors, you get into the fellowship hall. And every, I've been in six million Southern Baptist Fellowship Halls. They all look the same. There's a kitchen in a the corner. They put two cased openings, one for the sweet tea bar and one for the fried chicken and all the fixings. There were the same four or five sweet little old ladies that got up during the pastor's third point, went on into the kitchen, plugged in the coffee pot, got it. Because anybody testify, is that the church you grew up in? That's the church. Some of your aunt, well, somebody in here has got an aunt who lives in Pickens that right now she's getting the fellowship ready. She's doing it. So, so, so fellowshipping, and breaking bread, many of you will enjoy the Super Bowl party tonight with other believers. And by the way, whether you are with other believers, make sure you act like one at the party tonight. But you will, you will fellowship with other believers, and there will be great festivity and laughter and joking, and you'll enjoy a meal. That's a good thing. That's not the Lord's Supper. They had melded the two together and forgotten about the poor. And Paul had had enough. And in the midst of this criticism, he then does what any leader should do if they're going to criticize you. He gives a correction. Look at the correction because one commentator rightly said, this next paragraph is a diamond in a mud hole. In the midst of a bad, sad situation, it is a beautiful treatment of the Lord's Supper. In fact, it is Paul's most direct and powerful words about this ordinance of the church. Look what he says beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of of me, And then look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but the Bible did not appear in chronological order. In, in other words, while Paul is writing his letters... Mark's working on his. Matthew's writing his gospel. Luke's recording his gospel. And we know John's gospel comes really late. John's the latest to the canon. He writes John, and then he writes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the last book of the Bible written by date and by implication was the revelation of Jesus, the last book in your New Testament. What that would have meant was is that the Corinthian believers didn't have the four Gospels and they were just waiting on Paul to finish his letters. Most scholars believe Paul probably wrote 1 Corinthians down even before Luke's Gospel was finished and being circulated. They were all writing at the same time. These were all contemporaries. And so when Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, he's not saying, now when I was there, I read to you out of the book of Luke. 
He's saying what the apostles who discipled me, who mentored me, what I learned from Peter in Jerusalem, what I got from Barnabas, I gave to you. It came from the Lord through them to me and to you. And I gave it to you exactly as it was given to me. And the next few lines, you've actually heard them read many times here because often I will read this passage when we take the Lord's Supper. We know that the Lord's Supper was set on the foundation of the Passover. Jesus and all of his disciples were Jewish. The Passover was being observed in Jerusalem during the crucifixion of Christ, and that is no mistake. It is the sovereign control of God over the calendar of man. What's the Passover? The Passover was the festival given to the Hebrews, to the Jews, to commemorate their deliverance and redemption from Egyptian slavery. And more specifically, the word Passover comes from the actual act of the angel of the Lord, also sometimes referred to as the death angel in that context, passing over the Jewish homes as he struck down in judgment of Egypt the firstborn of every home, all the way to the firstborn of every animal. And Moses told the people, sacrifice a lamb without blemish. Spread the blood on the doorpost of your home. And when the angel passes over and sees the blood, he will pass over you. You will go from being in a place of death to being in a place of life. The cool thing about that is, that means that all of our forefathers of the faith, all of those Jews who trusted and loved the Lord God, ate the Passover to celebrate when they did not die. But we eat the Lord's Supper to celebrate when he did. They ate the lamb to remember the bread, the manna from heaven. We eat the bread to remember the lamb. And when we think about what Jesus is doing, it makes perfect sense. The Passover would have been that moment when the people of Israel would have been gathered to celebrate the deliverance of God, his redemption. Jesus knew, because Jesus was there when the Passover was initiated, Jesus knew that every lamb on this earth was just a foreshadow of a greater lamb. Every ounce of blood was a foreshadow of his blood. Every act of obedient sacrifice according to the Mosaic law was an act of by faith believing that God would one day redeem them from the curse of the law and delivered them by writing the law of God on their hearts, according to Jeremiah. So the Lord's Supper takes on this deep, rich, broad concept in our mind when we see it as the commemorative moment where we celebrate the passing of the old covenant and the coming of the new Covenant. This is why when Jesus says these words, beginning in verse 25, in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When you hear the word cup in the Bible, often it is associated with God pouring out the cup of his wrath. The psalmist believer says it this way in the book of Psalms. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and pours out from it. And he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The idea of God pouring out his wrath. This is not just for the wicked. God's people can experience the wrath of God in temporary discipline. The book of Isaiah speaks of this. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So for an Old Testament believer, for a Bible student to hear the cup of the Lord, you often hear it in reference to the cup of his wrath, which is why this cup becomes so much more significant. It is both. It is the cup celebrating the wrath of God for our sin on the Lamb of God for our salvation. So when I take the cup, I remember that this cup causes me to recollect on the blood that was shed as a result of the wrath of God so that the grace of God can be poured over 
me. And then I'm reminded of the significance of that blood. See, when Moses confirmed the covenant in Mount Sinai, the Bible says he took blood and threw it on the people. This is the blood of animals signifying the covenant with God and man. But at Calvary, blood was poured out for the whole world, which is why the most Jewish book in your New Testament says it this way. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, how'd he do it? By the blood of the eternal covenant. Why is the new covenant the eternal covenant? Because the God of the old covenant knew a new covenant was coming. The old covenant did not need to be replaced because it failed. The old covenant set the stage for the new covenant because the law of Moses did show the perfection of God. The law of Moses showed the seriousness of sin. But the law of Moses could never remove sin from us. See, the law only saves you if you keep it. The only one who ever kept it gave his life for all those who broke it. Meaning, the blood has still never lost its power. Now, it's important for you to be informed. The Lord's Supper is a unifying and dividing issue among Christians. There are historically four views of the Lord's Supper. Our friends and neighbors in the Catholic Church teach a doctrine called transubstantiation. That will be on the spelling test Friday. I, I typed it three times before I got it right. Transubstantiation is a doctrine we do not affirm. We would disagree with our friends and neighbors in the Catholic Church. Transubstantiation takes this passage and others to an unhealthy, literal interpretation, meaning that the wafer and the wine taken by our Catholic friends and neighbors during what they would call Mass, literally, through a miraculous event, turns into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. Another view made popular by Martin Luther, a great reformer, is consubstantiation. If you grew up in the Lutheran church, this would be the view that they would teach in their theological circles. It rejects transubstantiation in that it does not believe that the wafer and the wine literally turn into the actual flesh and the actual blood of Jesus. But it says spiritually Christ is present in the flesh and the blood in a significant and special way, more real than any other way that he approaches or indwells the church. The view that many of you would have grown up in, perhaps the view that you grew up in if you grew up like me in a Baptistic church or Baptist church, would be the memorial view. This is why if you grew up in the Baptist church, it looked like my Baptist church. There was one center aisle. You had yellow, green, or red carpet. At the center was the pulpit. Just over the right shoulder of the pastor was the attendance record, that little board with the black and white numbers. The last number was how much was given to the building fund, which was usually $439.37. On the left side was the pianist. On the right side was the organist. Just behind the pianist on the left side was the American flag. Just behind the organist on the right side was the Christian flag. And at the center of the church, just below the pulpit, was a wooden table. On that wooden table was a nice flower arrangement, and the woman that provided its name was in the bulletin. There are two silver offering plates that will be handed out during the service, and a Bible that weighs 74 pounds. <laughs> it was opened, and usually it was a passage about judgment. And the front of the table, etched in the wood, said, This do in remembrance of me. Why? Because that was the Lord's Supper table. And once a quarter, that table was slid out. Everything was cleared. A set of white tablecloths was put over it. Those beautiful silver trays was put out. And the pastor and the deacon sat on the front row. And they served the Lord's Supper to the church. I've been a part of it since I was born. And that may be recollecting some memories for you. And I was always taught, this is symbolic. We remember the Lord. 
a more reformed view, Presbyterian in its um, roots, uh, by John Calvin, we don't have time to go into who he is, he's pretty important, would be the spiritual presence. It would kind of be the best of all three, but really what it would say is, is that Christ is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper in a unique way for the church. Not in a way that is unlike other ways in the terms of magnitude, but he spiritually blesses his table. So I, I would say to you, for us as a church, being Baptist in our theology, but very much reformed in our understanding of grace, we would find our comfort level in the best parts of number three and number four. And by the way, if you're ever sharing the gospel with a friend or a loved one who grew up in the Catholic faith, this is why you need to make sure your language is clean. If you say, well, have you ever accepted Jesus to someone who was raised in the Catholic faith, they're going to hear you asking, do they go to Mass? Because at Mass, every Friday or every Saturday or every Sunday when they attend, they accept Jesus literally into their body. So it's important that you understand the language of other people so you can describe to them what the gospel is and what it means to have a personal relationship with the Lord. I have met many Catholics who did have a personal relationship with the Lord. They love the Lord Jesus. But I also believe it's important to make sure there's a differentiation between affirming the steps and the beliefs and the ceremonies of the church and the true gospel, which is not works-based at all. This is why we don't teach you take the Lord's Supper to be saved or you be dipped in water to be saved or you attend church to be saved. We don't believe that the ceremonies of the church are the way in which we access salvation from God. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through God's grace alone, and the ultimate authority is the Bible alone. These are the great solas of the Reformation. And so when we think about baptism and we think about the Lord's Supper, it's important to think about them correctly and understand what it is we mean when we say, Christ said, this is my body, do so in remembrance of me. This is my blood, take it and drink in remembrance of me. Remember, those are not the only two places Christ compared himself to an inanimate object. He also said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the gate, I am the door, I am the true vine. So Christ has a pattern of using objects that we are to look at and be reminded of a more fuller picture of who he is. That is the correction. But once you view it correctly, then there comes the criteria. So right after this passage, Paul launches into how to correct the criticism through the proper criteria. Look what the Bible says in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, if you want to know what that looks like, all you got to do is look at verses 17 through verse 22. They're abusing it in an unworthy manner. Concerning the body, concern will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So this is a unique sin against God to be irreverent or abuse the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't want to be that. I don't think you're here today because you want to be that. So what do we do? We'll look at verse 28. You've heard this read many times preceding the Lord's Supper. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Why? Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Now watch this. And some have died. Now this is not something you hear many modern communicators deal with. There is biblical precedence to teach that God has the right to punish believers for their sin unto death. This does not mean that the believers who die in judgment die damned. This is not speaking of condemnation, for there is no condemnation in Christ. But once you are saved, God is the one who numbers your days. God is the one who has full right to give you a long, wonderful, lasting life, to call you to give your life as a martyr, a martyr, or even 
to call you into judgment for your particular sin. Now, this does not mean Christians should say anytime a person who is a Christian dies young or a horrific death or is succumbed to some disease that they were somehow under the judgment of God. That is not biblical. That is not what this is teaching. This is teaching that if we stray away from God's will in our life, he will and promises to discipline us. And he can discipline us up unto the point of death. Now upon death, if we're saved, we're welcomed into his presence, forgiven of our sin, never to be condemned again. We don't lose our redemption, but we do lose our right to live for him in this world if we take sin lightly. There's also another application. How many of you know someone that you believe genuinely was born again, yet strayed from the Lord in a terrible way and the consequences of their sin cost them their life? I know that. I know of people, and I do believe that they had a relationship with the Lord, and they found themselves in a sinful season of rebellion, and as a consequence of that rebellion, they lost their life. Now, it's hope. It's rare. It's not something we wish upon anyone, but I also don't get to, as your pastor, to, to try to take out the sobering reminder, this is how serious God takes sin. So then if you say, okay, pastor, what do I do to not be unworthy of taking the Lord's Supper? Notice that the passage never tells you to pay penance. It does not tell you to feel guilty enough to the point that you judge yourself. The verb is actually examine yourself. Look at yourself. And it's actually a continual tense to continually examine yourself. Now, some people, when you begin to talk about criteria, are quick to say, mm, you know, look, if you're talking about judgmentalism or legalism, I'm out. I'm a grace Christian. I'm all about God's grace. Me too. Me too. But the greatest tragedy when we discuss grace is we divorce it from the real meaning of grace. Let's talk about grace real quick. Here's how grace works. Grace of God gives you clarity. You know his will. You know who his son is. You have his Bible. Certainly, there are areas of gray in our lives, but the big things, black and white. The Word spells it out, right and wrong. This is what I'm to do. And by the way, if you have the grace of God in your life through a right relationship with Christ, you don't need me to tell you if you sinned. You know it. You know it. You, you know when you disobey the Lord. So, so the grace of God, which leads to clarity, helps us identify sin, and we know it's sin because what do we feel? We feel conviction. We, we're like, mm, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't have thought that. I should not have looked at that. I should not have treated him this way. I should not do this. The situation was tough, and I wasn't the only person who was misbehaving. But in the situation, in the conversation, I was wrong. I shouldn't doubt God. I, 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 I shouldn't fail to be thankful. Whatever it is, I know. I know when I am wrong. I might not know all the time exactly how to get out of the situation. But I know through conviction when something in my life is against God's will. And then what do you do with conviction? Well, you do what the Bible says. You bring your conviction to him in confession. You, you say, Lord, I, I was wrong. What I said was wrong. What I did was wrong. This is wrong. Now, today's sermon is not a sermon on confession, but I'll, I'll give it to you in a condensed version. People ask the million-dollar question. Preacher, you always say God knows everything past, present, and future. Why have I got to tell him what I did? I already feel bad about it, and I know he knows. Let me give you the answer to that. This may be a little simplistic for you. It works for me. Confession is not about you telling God something he doesn't know. Confession is about you revealing to God so he can see you know. It's not about what he knows. He not only knows your sin, he knew your sin before you committed your sin. He knew your sin so much that before you were born and capable of sinning, he sent his son to die for your sin. Confession is about coming before him and saying, God, I know what I did. And when you're truly confessing your sin, guess what you don't want to do? You don't want to do it anymore. You know what that's called? Repentance. And guess what you need to repent? Grace. Grace begins it, grace ends it, and this is a table of grace. 
And, and the fascinating thing about this is how it ends, because it ends where I'll end, and we'll take the supper together. He says these words in verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then he adds, about the other things, I'll give you direction when I come. Twice a year, I like to take our senior pastors away for a couple of days. We've been praying about you. We've seen attendance go off the charts. We understand we're limited in parking. We're trying to start new campuses. We want to do God's will. And so we just need to get before the Lord and we need to pray. And that's what we do. So we always have a, a day of prayer and discussing. And sometimes we argue and fist fight and box out <laughs> on ideas. And then, you know, we, and then there's a day of fun. Well, none of my pastors are real outdoorsmen, but I decided this year I'd take them all quail hunting. I gave Jeff Brockelman a shotgun. No humans or quail were harmed by Jeff Brockelman. <laughs> but I love him. I love who he is. I love the man he is. I love the way he leads us into worship. I love him. But this, other than leading us to worship so passionately and building a great team, the second greatest contribution Jeff Brockelman has is Shelly Brockelman, his wife's brisket. <laughs> she sent brisket tacos, and I want you to know, they will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. They are so good, you even forget your manners. I mean, we cook the tortillas fresh, the brisket, the avocado, the cilantro, the pickled jalapenos, the homemade salsa, and the sour cream. It was so good that I ate it for lunch, I ate it for supper. I wanted one the next day for breakfast, but I'm trying to do some intermittent fasting, so I couldn't eat it for breakfast, but I did lust after it. I did look at it in the refrigerator. <laughs> I came home, and I told Laura about these tacos, and she got mad at me. She said, why are you telling me all this? This is so good. Take me for nachos. That's what she told me. <laughs> when you have a meal like that, you don't just say, oh, yeah, it was good. You describe it. I mean, right now, some of you are Googling, where is the best brisket taco for lunch at, near church at the meal? If that's you, put your phone down. We're not done. Think about the ingredients of this table. I don't mean just the bread and the cup. Man, this is a meal of commemoration where you remember what he did. This is a meal of celebration. Eating it says you're saved. In fact, it's only for believers. It's a meal of proclamation. You're telling the world, my hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's a meal of preparation. My God is so good, he wants me to get ready to eat it. And it's a meal of anticipation. I'm going to abandon this table one day. There's a table coming in heaven that's not about the cross, it's about the kingdom. I celebrate the cross to get ready for the kingdom. But on that day, we will celebrate a new heaven and a new earth. And so when you think about these moments, Let's take the table together and savor the ingredients. Would you bow with me? As we prepare to take the table, would you examine your heart? Would you think about who you are? Would you take just a moment and see if there is any unconfessed sin in your heart. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you don't have to be excluded, but the only way to be included is to give your life to Him. In fact, if you've never given your life to Christ, there's no better day than right now to say, you know what, I'm tired of trying. I'm tired of being around it. I am going to turn my life over to Christ. I want him to be my Lord and Savior. If that's your prayer, then the minute this service ends, I beg of you, step into our prayer room and ask to speak with one of our counselors. 
you are too valuable to make a decision that important and not speak to someone who can lovingly help you. But for those of you who are believers, before you tear the top of that cup off and hold that wafer, and before you take that one ounce of juice, God has built in a way for you to examine your heart. And I want you to do that right now. I want you to look at your life if there's anything that does not line up with God's will, I'd like for you to confess it to him. There's a revival going on this week. In a school in Kentucky, chapel service, Christian school. Started on Wednesday. They've worshipped around the clock. I have some friends that have gone to see it. It's real. A fresh movement of God is happening on that campus. And we need that so bad. I tell you, though, it starts with God's people examining themselves. You're not in charge of this church. You're not in charge of the person to your left or your right. God has placed you over your heart. And I would just say that if your examination reveals something that involves another person, today or tomorrow, there's some phone calls that need to happen. some people in this room that need to say something like this. Yesterday, we took the Lord's Supper and Pastor told us about confessing our sin. And I have spoken cruelly to you. I have mistreated you. You and I have been at odds. And I want you to know I cannot control whether or not you forgive me or believe me. I want you to know I'd like for you to forgive me. I want to confess that I failed you and I ask for your forgiveness. Friend, you're not responsible for how that person acts or reacts. You're simply responsible for confessing your sin to someone if you've sinned specifically against them. I think it would be a beautiful thing if hundreds of people reconciled relationships every time we went to the table. Because the table reminds us there's nothing in this old world that's worth bickering and fighting over with someone. If we stand covered by the blood, redeemed and filled with the Spirit of God. Nothing. Lord, as we come to this moment where we confess our sin and we prepare to take communion, where we take your table. Help us to cherish it. Help us to be a people who cherish the old rugged cross. It may be a hill far away, but it is the daily reminder of a Savior who's good and close. we prepare, Lord, and dwell this worship in a special and significant way. What a Sing, church.
Bible says, at the supper, he took bread and he broke it. When he had blessed it, he gave it to them. He said, this is my body. As often as you eat it, do so in remembrance of me. Paul told the Corinthian believers what Christ told the apostles. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, this is a cup, new covenant in my blood. Pour it out for you as often as you drink it. Do so in remembrance of me. Matthew records that Jesus said these words. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. One day we'll abandon all this. And I won't trust in the Lord's presence. I'll see it. And because of that, it makes this last verse mean so much. Let's stand and be dismissed today and sing it together. To the old rugged cross, I will